0: This is Billy Bates, and thank you for tuning into my podcast. Any resemblance between events, places, and persons living or dead in this story is purely coincidental and a figment of your imagination. Like my mama said, you just dreamed that up and I'd be ashamed. Pistol Packin' Mama Among my many varied experiences in working in the performing arts over the years, I was fortunate in the earlier part of my career to land the position of managing a prestigious series of concerts at a notable private university in the South. Many of the greatest classical and jazz musicians of the 20th century appeared on stage there. Mezzo-soprano Jesse Norman, violinist Pinkus Zuckerman, pianist Peter Serkin, soprano Kathleen Battle, Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, pianist Richard Good, and jazz legend Marion McPartland were among many of the greats who graced the stage there. It was at this point where the South of Yesterday rears its head and one of the most outrageous characters with whom I've ever worked surfaced. Her name was Rhonda, or as she pronounced it, Rhonder, and she provided the secretarial support for the entire operation. She was from the rural South and made no bones about it. Right off she let me know that she carried a gun in her purse and wasn't going to take any guff from anybody. I suspect that's how she got hired in the end. I could envision her pulling out that gun mid-interview and pointing it at her prospective boss if there was any doubt that she might not get the job. She could not stop talking about anything and everything. While you were speaking to her, you could see the wheels in her head preparing her next speech. Only a couple of days into my tenure there, she bolted into the office one morning, raving at the top of her lungs about the other women who worked upstairs. I'm going to tell you something, Bill. If you ain't figured it out yet, most women in the workplace are hateful and bitter, and them women working upstairs are a good example. I imagine most of their husbands got tired of seeing them with their lips poked out and their butts up on the back all the time, and they left them. Then they had to go back to work and make everybody around them miserable. One of the first things she was quick to tell me about when I started was her former job in radiology in the hospital where they do cancer research. I tried to withhold my look of horror as the story rolled out. Okay, Bill, first of all, there were more hateful women working over there. As soon as our boss would go out of town, they would go after each other, and as soon as he'd come back, they were running in and out of the office, tattling until the whole staff was in tears. And the second thing was that there was only one refrigerator in a room on the hall for me to put my lunch in, and it was filled with heads donated for cancer research. Now can you imagine coming in every day with your pimento cheese sandwich in a sack and opening that refrigerator door to put it in there and seeing a bunch of dead faces staring back at you? I was sure she was making it up, but a few months later she took me over there and showed it to me. It was like something out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Listen, have you seen what them maids are doing out there in that hall closet? They got an electric griddle hooked up out there and they're frying turkey necks. Perline told me they take a taxi to the grocery store on their break, and buy up the turkey necks then come back here and cook 'em. It stinks to high heavens. They just get away with murder. I interrupted. Rhonda, Professor Americhi came by and left this with me and asked you to retype it again with the corrections included. Rhonda exploded. Good God, Bill. Do you know how many times I've typed that dang thing for him? I swear the professors in this department just think I'm some monkey on a leash hooked up to an organ grinder while smacking finger symbols together to keep them entertained. I'm just sick of it. I moved forward to make my morning calls to agents in New York regarding bookings for the following season. I was negotiating a contract for the Emerson String Quartet, and I could hear Rhonda's voice getting louder and louder at the next desk. Uh-huh. Well, I know what she's up to. She's hated me ever since the first day I walked in the door here, and she's been trying to get me fired ever since then. She became more agitated and frenetic. She don't know who she's dealing with. Tell her to keep on and watch what happens. I'll pull every dyed hair and her head out. She slammed the receiver down and showed that she was pleased with herself. The New York agent asked me if there was a fight going on in the background in the office. I just sighed and ended the call. After I had been there several weeks, I noticed Rhonda repeatedly wore a beige polyester three-piece pantsuit quite regularly. Every time she wore it, I eyed it suspiciously. Finally, I got up the nerve one day to ask her about it. Rhonda, I like your pantsuit, but it looks so familiar to me for some reason. Rhonda beamed and blasted back. Well, thank you, Bill. I'll tell you, I worked as a temp for Eastern Airlines for six weeks, and they let me keep the uniform. I like it so much, I just wear it all the time. Early on in what I called my life with the academic experience, I learned from a mentor I highly respected that the infighting among professors was so fierce because the stakes were so small. As was true then and probably still is now in many major performance halls, complimentary cough drops were provided at the entrance to the hall for patrons to discourage distractions during a performance. I thought this was a good model to emulate and secretly thought it might be a great idea to have a free dispensary of Prozac at the door of our building. Depression and emotional desperation seemed to run rampant among professors and some staff. Even Rhonda got it right when she remarked on a faculty cellist who always seemed to be on the verge of tears and wore black every day covered in cat hair. Lord, Bill, if I sat in that itty-bitty room with no windows and sawing on that thing all day long, I'd be depressed too. It didn't take long for Rhonda's reputation of being short-tempered and her willingness to take almost anyone on to spread throughout the campus. The fact that she kept a gun in her purse had also traveled like wildfire. Anybody who dared to step into the office was fair game in her opinion, and no one was spared from her sharp tongue and caustic remarks. Now, some of you may wonder why I allowed Rhonda to traverse all of these various paths in the workplace rather than force her to simply do her job. I must point out that we both reported directly to the head of the department. While I had some limited supervisory responsibilities, the head of the department, who was terrified of her because she carried a gun, was not comfortable enforcing discipline and was essentially useless in doing so in the long run. Because Rhonda was in a rather public position at her desk, she claimed she was under constant scrutiny by the professors in the department even if she stepped away to go to the bathroom. Directly across the hall from our office was the custodian's closet in which Perline, Lunette, and Asha Ray were housed. They were under a minimum of supervision and spent much time sitting in the closet with the door closed. It wasn't long before Rhonda figured out, as cleaning wasn't getting done and they were nowhere to be found most of the day, it made her absolutely furious. Ain't this something, Bill? I'm getting work to death for next to nothing, and they sit out there with that door closed drawing a salary. I'm going to figure out a way to put a stop to it. Rhonda, I wouldn't mess in that. You might get into trouble. I ain't afraid. The other day I heard Osheray talking to Lunette like she was just a piece of dirt. And I stuck my head in the door and said, If you were my husband and you talked to me like that, I'd be waiting behind the kitchen door for you with a number 10 iron skillet. One day after lunch, I returned to the building and as I walked in and passed the custodian's closet. About this time, Pearline staggered out, rubbing the sleep out of her eyes. She suddenly stopped in front of me, catching herself before she toppled forward. I got to stay on my feet. Last week, our supervisor, Mr. Lewis, come in here, and he caught us on the f- closet floor asleep. He said he gonna fire all three of us if it happened again. But if he do, I'm gonna tell you what gonna happen, Bill. Perline gonna get him good. I'll be waiting for him out yonder under that bridge that lead to the bus stop, and it's going to be with the biggest knife old Pearline can get. Yeah, he ain't going to laugh no more, because I'll slice him up. Quickly reached under her physical plant smock, lifted her leg, and scratched at something, then headed off down the hall, slapping a pack of paper towels against her thighs, singing Midnight Train to Georgia at the top of her lungs. Suddenly, Lunette joined in filling in for the pips, while the popping grease in her frying pan filled with turkey necks in the closet provided a percussive background beat. It was clear that the less the custodians did, the angrier Rhonda became. Once she learned of the altercation with their supervisor and the fact that he did little to change their behavior, I began to watch the wheels in her head turn as she started planning her next move. Soon after this incident, Rhonda became more belligerent, more antagonistic, and generally ready to rumble with anyone who walked through the door. She had carpenters construct a low wall in front of her desk that deterred, but didn't completely block overzealous faculty members from joining her behind her desk. She had a bright orange phone installed, replacing the standard model that all the staff had, and turned the volume of the ring up to maximum. At the same time, her outfits started getting more and more outrageous. One day, she appeared in a yellow lemon pantsuit that was smothered with what appeared to be cornstalk applique. Then there was a dress I called her Back to School Ensemble. Clearly, it was another bad dress from the early 70s. It was the color of baby feces and had mathematical equations covering the voluminous bell sleeves. Covering the center in front of the dress was a full bookcase and the hem of the dress was lined with small plastic red apples. And I can't ever forget the purple power outfit, which consisted of polyester bell-bottom slacks, one shade of purple, a polyester blouse with a nose picker collar, another shade of purple. To complement these, she wore a pair of purple candies and a leather vest with fringe that hung almost to her knees in the front and back, which was yet another shade of purple and which slapped anyone within a two foot range in the face if you were seated when she spun on her heel and stomped off. Her long, straight hair seemed to get brassier. I suspected it was either hydrogen peroxide or sun in. Almost every hour on the hour she would take a brush out of her purse, no matter who was there, and brush her hair with dozens of strokes so hard that they bordered on being violent. She began to experiment with makeup, which included heavier and heavier pancake. She applied orange rouge and purple eyeshadow and snow-white lipstick with glitter in it and pranced about the office proudly. She had become a caricature of herself. She began telling these strange stories about experiences she had been through. I was particularly horrified at hearing her tell a story about having a root canal done on one of her teeth without anesthesia because she was allergic to Novocaine. With a satanic smile on her face, she explained how blood spurted everywhere while the dentist drilled deeply into her jawbone through infected gum tissue. She seemed inordinately proud of her ability to withstand pain. Bill, I saw stars, but I grabbed onto them chair handles and told him to keep a-drilling. Another tale was about a long needle that was inserted deep into her big toe to relieve the pressure and pain of an ingrown toenail. And of course, there was more blood everywhere, which she thought was highly amusing. And you know what, Bill? I put on my high heels and I walked right out of there after he'd done it. With me, I struggled to take the high ground and remain the professional arts executive, as was my nature. With Rhonda, she seemed to always be in search of her next war. The office space in which we worked while on the first floor was actually set halfway below the ground, so that when you glanced out the window, you were actually eye-level with the sidewalk leading into the entrance of the building. This created moisture problems from time to time, and with that came ants. After several weeks of one particularly wet spring, we had several trails of ants leading from Rhonda's window, and Rhonda called the exterminator. You need to get over here today and get this mess of ants out of here. About an hour later, the exterminator showed and set out about a half a dozen small cuts of some sort of gel on the window ledge and said he would check back with her in four or five days. Two days later, I arrived to start the day, and as I stepped into the door, Rhonda went on a tear. That exterminator don't know nothing about what he's doing. I come in this morning, Bill, and them answers worse than they were than when he put them cups of that sticky mess up there. And I ain't have it, and I can tell you that. Come here, Bill. Come on over here. I want to show you something. I walked over to my desk, put my briefcase down, and joined Rhonda at the window. Looky here, Bill. When I come in this morning, there was ants, i marching up and down this wall, all the way from the window ledge across over to my coffee area, and I'm going to tell you, it has made me furious. I grabbed my trash can, walked over here, and raked every one of them cups into it. Then I got some paper towels, soaked them good, and I come over here and wiped all the ants away, and I stood back and looked at that, and I thought to myself, Now, don't that look better? And in a couple of days, when that clown comes back, I'm just going to unload on him. I ain't having such a mess up there in my window. Oddly enough, the exterminator showed up later that afternoon to check on the progress of his ant extermination. As soon as he stepped in the door, he couldn't have got a word in edgewise if he had tried. He didn't stand a chance. Rhonda stood up at her desk, did a double hair flip, and put her hands on her hips and launched into her speech. So I see you come back to check on that big sorry mess you left sitting over there on that window ledge. You mean to tell me they're paying you to do something like that? Them cups with that sticky gel wasn't doing nothing but bringing and attracting hundreds and hundreds of more ants to the ones that was already there. You ain't never seen such a swarm of ants in your life, mister. What were you trying to do, form an ant colony? I threw them cups out, I washed all them ants away, and now it looks just fine. I should have known better to call you in the first place and just done that to start with. If that's the kind of work you do for that company, I don't know how in the heck it stays in business. Now you just come back here and collect up the rest of this junk that's yours and you get out of here right now. And don't you ever come back. Poor guy started to speak. You don't really understand how these caps are supposed to work. You have to, Rhonda interrupted him. I don't have to understand nothing and I don't have to do nothing. And I'm telling you, a lot of other women would have told you where to get off the minute you stepped through the door. Now you get out of here and get out now. The exterminator sheepishly gave up his equipment and other tools and quickly slipped out the door without another word. Well, I reckon he'll think twice before he sticks that sticky junk in somebody else's window. What a sorry man! She spun out on her heels and left the office to go down the hall. It seemed now that the eroding relationship between Rhonda and the custodians was reaching, and forgive the pun, a roaring crescendo. Rhonda spent more time daily focusing on what the custodians were or weren't doing, especially when they were in the closet with the door shut, and less time actually getting her work done. If a professor or other staff member accused her of not getting her work done, she would scream, More, 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 for less, less, less. Just keep dumping it on the old mule and see if she don't sit down in the middle of the row one day. Then walked into the office to start the day the next day and Rhonda was sitting at her desk with an evil smirking smile on her face. Something had changed. I could feel it in the atmosphere and in her attitude. I said, what are you smiling about, Rhonda? What has happened? She said was, you gonna find out. I heard her chuckle under her breath. The morning passed uneventfully and we went our separate ways for lunch. When I returned to the office, Rhonda was at her desk applying makeup and combing her hair. I got this uneasy feeling she was preparing for some sort of presentation. In about 15 minutes, she looked at me and said, watch this. She pulled her revolver out of her purse and headed out the office door. Suddenly, I heard her banging violently on the custodian's closet door yelling, come out of there right now. Door swung open and Purlene said, what you want? I'll tell you what I want, I want all three of you run out of here. Pointed the gun to the drop ceiling and fired. Fortunately, classes were in session, so the hallway was vacant of professors and students. Regardless, I knew Rhonda's bark was louder than her bite. She just wanted to shake things up. I opened the office door to see Perline, Oshere, and Lunette bolt through the door screaming. Lunette was howling help me Jesus. Perline was wringing her hands and running for the door bawling, and out the front door all three of them went. Only seconds later, the campus police bolted through the doors and grabbed Rhonda and handcuffed her. She was undeterred. As the police pocketed her gun and started to delete her away, she smiled at me and said, Bill, they were sorry, and they knew they were sorry. I cleaned house, didn't I? Dumbfounded, I walked back into the office collected my things, and went to drive to the airport to pick up the famed soprano Cecilia Bartoli, who was singing a sold-out operatic recital that night. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about me, my writing, and additional stories from my collection, visit www.billybates.com. That's www.b-i-l-l-y-b-a-i-t-e-s.com.